Turn with me then your Bibles to uh, the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra. And we'll be looking mainly at chapter three, but we'll be dipping into chapter one as well. Now, um, I don't usually title my messages, but I thought it'd be appropriate to do so this time. This message is called First Things First. And to a degree, it's going to be something of a bit of a preparation for us as we seek to return now to our church building and to, uh, and to worship there as we have in the past. Now, when we are looking at Ezra 1 and 3, what's happening here is that our forefathers are returning now to Jerusalem from their exile in Persia. They've been in Persia for almost a lifetime, something like 70 years. And while they've been there, they have been unable to worship the Lord as they'd like, unable to worship him as he designed. They can't offer any sacrifices. There's no temple for them to go to. They can't gather. They can't uh, sing like they did before. They can't have their public readings like they did before or observe their feasts as they did before. In a way, you could say that church has been cancelled for decades. But now, finally, the Lord is starting to fulfill his promise to bring them back to his house, to worship him there for his faithfulness, for his mercy, for his salvation that he has given to them. Now, when you think about it, this this, uh, expedition from Persia all the way to Jerusalem for so many people, tens and tens of thousands of people, that's a mammoth logistical feat, isn't it? How did they organise that? How did they travel? How did they meet up and rendezvous? How did they know where one another would be and when? How did they handle all of their baggage? What about security over such a long journey? What about their money and their finances? How did they handle that? What did they eat? How did they survive a journey of five months long all the way from Persia, all the way home to Jerusalem? All of these and far more are really interesting questions, aren't they? There's so many interesting, fascinating details, but they're conspicuously omitted. They're just not given to us. We just don't know. All of that is just brushed over. Why? Because the first thing is a first. The priority here for our fathers, for Ezra, for Nehemiah, is worship. The priority is worship. And that's what it's focused on. And so, God willing, now this evening, we're going to see three priorities in worship to guide us now into the coming weeks. And the first one is the priority of unity in worship, the priority of unity. You see that in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 3, verses 10 to 13 in particular, but it is, it's there throughout. I wonder if you noticed, actually, the, uh, that interesting phrase in chapter 1, and verse no, not chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 3 and verse 1, as one man. Did you see that? Have you seen that phrase anywhere else in the Bible? As one man. Well, approximately 50% of the times that the Bible uses this phrase is just in Ezra and Nehemiah. Here's my Bible. All of that is my Bible. And half of the times you get the phrase as one man appears just in this little bit here. 
is so significant, especially for this time. It describes when our fathers were uh, coming together as if they were one person, as if they all had one mind. They had a single determination between all of them to worship the Lord, to worship him for saving his people, for saving his church, you might say. That's what we do every Sunday. We all gather as one person to worship our God for his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you remember, how long was the exile? Around about 70 years, wasn't it? And so, how many of these people, do you think, actually saw Israel? Many of them had never even seen Jerusalem. They had never even seen the borders of Israel. And yet they were united in their desire to go there and to worship the Lord for saving them. All that they had known of their lives in Persia was beginning to fade away now. It was all just disappearing next to that priority, that priority of going to worship the Lord for saving them. Why? Why is all their life disappearing next to this priority? Because first things are first. Worshipping the Lord for his salvation. Just for a moment, consider the barriers that are present to their unity, things to prevent them from being unified. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 5, you'll see a variety of people. And we'll come to the variety in a moment. But you see there, there are heads or leaders or elders. And with them there are priests. And with them there are Levites. They're like, a bit like deacons or servants in the temple. And it says as well, all of those who were moved. There were so many different types of people there. Imagine you're somewhere between Persia and Jerusalem and you're on one of the major roads and you see coming towards you an enormous caravan of immigrants and they're all Jews leaving exile, coming back to Jerusalem. And when you have a look, there's young people and little children. There are old people with long beards. There are a few that are over 70. There are many that are sort of in their 20s and 30s and 50s. And there are men and women and children. There are so many different people, rich people with all sorts of jewelry on them, poor people with just rags. It was a diverse group of people. And yet it was as if they were one person going to God's house to worship him. If you stopped this caravan and said, hang on a second, I want to ask you all some questions. What's going on here? Where are you all going? Each one of them would say, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why are you going to Jerusalem? I'm going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Why, why would you do that? Because he saved me. He saved me. So you go to the next person. You say, where are you going? I'm going to Jerusalem. Like him then. Yeah. Where, where, why are you going there? I'm going to worship the Lord. Why are you going to worship the Lord? Because he saved me. And tens of thousands of people would all give the same answers. We're all going to God's house. We're all going to worship him because he saved me. Now that's nothing impressive, you might say. Nothing impressive about that unity at all. 
the same sort of thing can be seen on Mary Street in um, in Cardiff on match day, uh, any rugby game. Uh, you know, people from all over the world will come into one city. Uh, a diverse people from all over the nations they all come and unite behind one priority of watching a rugby match. But is that the same unity? What's the difference there? Well, there are many, but here's one. How much does it cost to watch a rugby game? Many people, even massive, diverse groups of people, can be united behind cheap causes. Cheap causes like rugby games or political campaigns. And I'm not belittling these things, but they're relatively cheap. When you consider that our fathers in these days left everything behind. Everything. They were united in purpose to worship the Lord for his salvation, but also united in the agreement that it was worth, what? Everything. It was worth their whole lives. In order to gather and worship the Lord, they left behind their homes and everything that they knew in Persia, never to return, because this was the priority. First things were first, worshipping God together. And so as we anticipate now as a church returning to the gathered worship in our building, do we count worshipping the Lord Jesus worth more than anything else? Are you convinced that following Christ is worth more than anything else? It's worth your whole life because without him, your life is pointless. Will we gather as one person? To praise the Lord Jesus for saving us. You know, we'll be walking down Whitchurch Road and uh, people might stop us. They say, where are you going? I'm going to church. I'm going to God's house. Why are you going there? I'm going there to worship God. Why are you going to worship God? Because he saved me. And you should come with me. (laughs) That is the challenge. Of the beginning of Ezra. That's the challenge. Are you are you willing to be a pilgrim, not belonging to this world, so long as you have Jesus? Or do you want to be a resident of this world without him? Well, how do we explain this? How do we explain such a strange phenomenon? How did it happen to them, this striking unity, and how can it happen to us? Because it is quite startling, isn't it? You've got a dilute and dispersed ethnic group flung into the corners of the world and they are uh, moved suddenly to pursue as if they were one person the worship of the Lord in ways in which many of them had never experienced before, in a language that many of them had forgotten, in a place which now a pile of rubble they had never been to at the cost of their jobs, their homes, their friends, their families, their livelihoods? What could cause such a striking and costly unity? Well, chapter 1, verse 5 answers us again. It says there, all whose spirits God had moved. All whose spirits God had moved. You see, for all of their diversity, that's something that they had in common. The Holy Spirit. 
stirring them up, bringing their priorities in place. We might say that the Spirit of Christ caused their motivation to be one person going to say uh, going to worship Him there for saving them. You know, and Ezra and Nehemiah written around the same time or about the same events, and uh, so is Zechariah, and he says this about this mammoth task that they're about to achieve of rebuilding Jerusalem and restoring worship. Uh, the Lord says, this is going to be done not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. My spirit. That's how this is going to happen. My spirit, the Lord says, bringing people together as one to worship me for my salvation. And so as unusual as this scene is to us, perhaps it should be familiar. The Holy Spirit bringing the church as one person to worship the Lord for his salvation in Jesus Christ. Are we being stirred up by the Holy Spirit as we're preparing to return to the church building? Are we being stirred up to have first things first? Let this be considered my official prayer request for this Wednesday. Let us pray for the Holy Spirit to be given to us so that we may be these all moved to come to God's house and worship him together as one person. So that's the priority of unity in worship. But now let's have a look at the priority of diversity in worship. And you see that especially in chapter 3, verse 1, and in verses 8 to 13. Upon their return to Jerusalem, the exiles, were they assimilated into the lives of the resident Jews? I don't read anything like that here. Maybe the resident Jews had to adopt Persian customs. I don't read anything like that here either. The first thing's first priority of worshipping the Lord for saving them was bigger than their differences. And so it's a diverse group that gathered without assimilation to worship together. You might remember that caravan of immigrants that we stopped on the way to Jerusalem to ask them some questions. It's finally arrived in Jerusalem, and when you have a look, it's the same mix-match of people. Resident Jews had joined the immigrants. Now, origin, class, accent, it didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. This is the Lord's people worshipping together for his salvation. And so in chapter 3, verse 8, we read about young men, just 20 years old, serving alongside old men in chapter 3, verse 12. In Nehemiah 3, around the same time, we have women, goldsmiths, merchants working together with the priests and the princes. Why? What could possibly trump all of those differences? First things first. The priority of worship trumps those differences. But what's the biggest diversity? It sticks out like a sore thumb right at the end of the chapter. Did you see it? In verse 12, we read about a happy day. Many of them were shouting for joy. Our fathers were overcome by a real heartfelt joy as they worshipped. 
And yet also in verse 12, we read about a sad day where our fathers, as they worshipped, were mourning the ruin caused by sin. And here's an interesting question. Were you there on that day? Which group would you join? Where would you put yourself? And so many of our commentaries ask a similar question. They say, who was right? The happy or the sad? What do you think? Were the happy right or the sad? Was anyone in the wrong? Perhaps the happy were a bit too sentimental, maybe even sensationalist. Should they remember the sin which caused such loss? Maybe the sad were getting carried away with nostalgia to the detriment of real worship. Perhaps they should focus on real heart worship and rejoice. Did they despise the day of small things or forget Ecclesiastes 7, calling the former days better than these? As interesting as these questions are, the book of Ezra asks no such questions. Can you tell from those responses which group was more zealous, which group was more holy or righteous? I can't. Since both of them are sincere and born from the same priority to worship the Lord, we must be charitable and sympathetic to both of them. Both groups, they just want to worship. Neither are correcting each other. Why? Because first things are first. And so when we do come back to our church building, how do you think we should do it? What's the best way to do it? And when we come back, will you be happy or will you be sad? Ezra chapter 3 demands from each of us sympathy for one another's responses, one another's sincere responses, because the first things are first. When we come back, we will all be constrained to obey, regardless of our feelings, Romans 12, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And so that's the priority of diversity in worship, how our diversity uh, is overcome by that greater priority. There's no assimilation. There is so much charity. Now, all of that by a way of introduction, and I'm only sort of joking. Because you see, among all of these priorities, there is a priority. There's something that trumps all of them. What is it that you're looking forward to most when we come back? Maybe it's singing, maybe it's reading, maybe it's hearing preaching uh, in the flesh, maybe it's just returning to your seat or whatever it may be, seeing one another in the flesh, that's going to be wonderful. But what were our fathers itching to do? Perhaps it was build their walls, rebuild their houses. Oh, my great-grandfather lived in this house or whatever it may be. Maybe it's rebuild the temple, something much more spiritual like that. Uh, the veil, the holy place. Maybe just the foundations. Let's just be pragmatic and get that. Something has trumped it all. Before the temple, in verse 6 it says, before the temple, 
Before the walls were completed, before they built their homes, they rebuilt the altar of sacrifice and they offered sacrifices on it. That's verse 2 and 3. Why was that the first thing? Because first things are first. And this is our last point together, the third thing, the priority of the sacrifice in worship. You see, our fathers in these days, they were in a good place. They loved the gathered worship of the Lord more than their homes, more than their walls, more than their money, more than their temple. They were happy to praise the Lord in the rubble if they could keep the sacrifice central to their worship. And so in the month that happens in Ezra 3, there are 219 sacrifices, not including all the individual ones in verse 5. You know, they have homes to rebuild. They have an economy to revive, hospitals to restore and farms to replant. Why spend so much time, so much of their resources offering sacrifice? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. They knew, they realised, they understood that worship, homes and their temple all counts for nothing at all for as long as they have sin, uncovered sin in their lives. And so they rationalised it. All of our priorities must collapse into this one priority, making sacrifice to cover our sin. Do all of our priorities Good ones, good ones, good priorities. But do they all collapse into this one? All of our worship is in vain. All of our efforts to open our building, it's in vain. Every song we sing, every chapter we read, even taking the sacraments, it's all in vain if it's not focused on and around the cross of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, his once for all atoning death on the cross. If that is not central, if the saviour, if Jesus is not central when we return, then we may as well not return. Our fathers would rather rubble and the altar of sacrifice than the temple without it. And so we may as well close the church forever if we can't have Christ absolutely central to everything that we do. These are remarkable days, aren't they? Both today and for our fathers. See, it's a diverse group of people were brought together as one man by the Spirit in order to offer sacrifice and worship the Lord together. But as unique a time as that was, it wasn't the last time. It wasn't the last time that there was a unity, a sacrifice, and mixed feelings on this very spot. History repeats itself. When did this event happen again? Not too long later, at the same place, A diverse group of Jews and Romans came as one person to achieve their priority, 
to crucify the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice for sinners. That was of first importance. And on that altar of a cross, he covered sin with his blood. And while some mourned his death, many rejoiced. Why did Jesus die? Well, there are a thousand answers to that one, but here's here's one. Jesus died so that history could repeat itself. Jesus died to make a fantastically diverse group of people from every nation, tribe, language and time who were cast into the farthest corners of this dark world under the tyranny of foreign kings, even the evil one, when they were so far away from God's house, so far away from the Father who loved them, so far away from the Saviour who gave himself for them, when they were so far away. He died to make that diverse group of people so distant from him a single united body of people who in their diversity shared that common priority that in the Holy Spirit their lives would be centred around the worthy worship of the Lord Jesus. This worship of our Saviour who made himself a sacrifice for sinners to cover sin to make our worship acceptable to the Father. When we return to our building, as the diverse and and unified group of Christians, Christians that we are, let us make him central. Let us make the spiritual worship of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, the sacrifice for sinners, the top priority. The gospel of Christ must be central. Why? Because first things are first. I'm going to give the last words again to the Bible. Revelation chapter 7. I'll just read a verse or two from there. And then I'll pray. And then we'll have our last hymn together. Revelation 7 and from verse 9. After these things I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your church to us. We thank you, Lord, that when we were in exile so far away from you, Lord, you loved us and had pity upon us and you stretched out your strong arm to save us. 
and you bound us together with cords of love and you tied us to the Saviour and to one another and that we have come now to love him and you and one another in the Spirit in the most indescribable way. You have made us one body and you have made Christ our head and though we are a diverse group, Lord, all sorts of different arms and legs to this body, Lord, and different members, you have made us one in the Saviour. Father, please give us over to charity and sympathy and love when we come back to our building and give us eyes to see and minds to understand hearts that peel, Father, for the Saviour. Please, Lord, don't let us be distracted. Teach us and constrain us to keep him absolutely central to all things, our lives, our Monday to Friday, Lord, as well as when we gather to worship you on Sundays. Oh, Father, make him absolutely central at all times and always for his own name's sake we pray amen <laughs>